0: Folks, 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 welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Today is June 12th. Um, we've got a pretty fun episode, I think. Uh, my AC barely works, so we figured we'd talk about summer in publishing <laughs> this week um, and kind of the history of it, the present dynamics of it in uh those beloved Summer Fridays that we all um, care so deeply about. But uh, before we get to that stuff, um, how about the basics, huh?
1: Absolutely. So it is June. That means this is the first month where we have three special episodes. If you are a Patreon supporter, you already know that our query show is out. That's the show where we uh, receive queries from people just like you, uh, specifically for the purpose of this show. And we critique them. Amazing. Um this Thursday, June 15th, yes, yes, yes. is our most exciting moment. Um, we have a brand new episode debuting today, or on Thursday, and it's called Writing by Reading.
0: Yeah, I'm we've kind of been talking about it a lot on the show um the last couple of weeks. We won't beat it too much here, but like basically We're taking a passage that someone's already published and is well-known and well-read and we all really like and breaking it down from a craft perspective, right, and just talking about, okay, what makes this particular bit of fiction really, really work? And I'm really excited about it, mostly because it gives us a chance to talk about our good friend this week.
1: George. George. R. R. Martin.
0: We're talking about George because we all wish George would do more writing. And And I think we're
1: like (laughs) T-minus four or five weeks out from the new season of Game of Thrones.
0: Um, So, yeah, we're going to be talking about um, a passage from George R. R. Martin's work, um, and we hope you'll join us because we think it's a really fun episode and we think it's going to be a lot of really great craft advice that's specific and tailored to people really trying to emulate someone who I think we would all agree is quite the the writer.
1: Yeah, so that's going to be – On our special Patreon, Mm -hmm. as well as the First Pages episode, which is the same thing as the Query Show, but instead of Queries, it's First Pages. Um, And that is going to be debuting Thursday, June 22nd. Mm -hmm. So two more special episodes of this month, ones we're really, really excited about. Um, Send us your first pages or queries or suggestions for writing by reading at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So I think we should get into it. Let's get into it. So I got some got some fun news. Mm-hmm. So I, I am a I am a wonderful online tipsy shopper, right? Oh, wait. And <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah.
0: An online tipsy shopper. Yeah. So what you just get liquored up and start purchasing things?
1: Usually, Eric, usually what I do is I just fill shopping carts <laughs> and then I just like close out of it. And most of the time oh. I don't buy, but every oh, once in a while I do. And one of the places I sometimes buy things from, especially when I'm buying gifts. Uh-huh. Is from a website called Out of Print Clothing. Okay. Um, Out of Print basically, they 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 do accessories and mostly t-shirts and like pencil cases and stuff like that.
0: What goes on these things? Just like
1: they're they're usually images of authors or like famous book covers. So so they're like like
0: it's like the book merch people. Yeah, it's
1: licensed book merch. Yeah, Okay. Um and so they've, you know, they've been really big with the handmaid's tale. I actually so so (laughs) the first thing that I bought from Out of Print, (laughs) um, don't hate me. I'm it was a pencil case. Uh Uh-huh. And it was uh, and I used it to keep my business cards in when I Uh would go to conferences. Um and they had it had polka dots on it. Uh So instead of like actual polka dots, the the polka dots were little busts of Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> oh
0: God. So this is what we're, this is um this is out of print. It's, it's just charming. like Little I'm not I'm not gonna say charming. Um little kitschy things like that with just like fun book stuff all over them. But uh, why are we talking about them today, Laura?
1: So uh, out of print clothing was bought by Penguin Random House <laughs> this week for an undisclosed amount of money.
0: Yeah. Um so PRH is now in the business of what?
1: Licensing their own books stuff. for T-shirts? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, that'd be great. I mean, I feel like, you know, maybe, you know, we've been talking a lot about the kind of the future of publishing lately. Maybe the answer is just not to publish books anymore, but rather just publish like tote bags instead. Yeah. Everybody uh, loves
1: tote bags. Yeah. I mean, I do. I shop at Aldi. So of course you need the <laughs> tote bags. Uh, but one, one, I'm just looking forward to like the day that, an edit comes back a day late because the editor that is working on it is like too busy editing a T-shirt. I'm
0: telling you, no, it's coming. Those those uh, those businesses will get merged. Um, you're gonna have like a whole um, editorial department for um, you know graphic tees. Yeah, which which is great because that'll let. It just kind of, like, cuts out the middleman, you know, because this is, like, the stuff that publishing people wear anyway. It's just, like, awful T-shirts with, like, the 1984 cover on it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the one that's selling really well right now are um, – so so out of print, of course, is highlighting the Penguin Random House books. Of course because it is course. now, yeah. Um, and they're highlighting, like, The Handmaid's Tale but also, like, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Very Hungry Handmaid. Um so- <laughs> Um, well, that's that's good. I'm yeah. glad that the the publishers are diversifying. Pretty soon, we won't have any need for books, and we'll yeah, just have it'll just um, Penguin Random Housing supplies. You know, it'll be <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll just get into all kinds of extra markets, yeah, which is yeah. good. I, I'm sure excited.
1: I'm interested to see what changes that yeah. will come from the PRH contracts uh-huh. because PRH is going to want to put their hands in the licensing and the merchandising, and yeah. normally those like all the publishers put those those clauses in their contracts, and they always get voided. They always get crossed right. out. And I'm wondering if they're going to fight harder for these oh, now. Oh, there
0: will be. Yeah, there probably is actually some interesting merchandising rights worth discussing yeah. here. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, because they've they, – yeah. No, actually, that's – <laughs> th- I didn't even thought about that, yeah, to be honest. Um, but but that's they good. That's own that's true. the covers, yeah.
1: which is – so So most yeah. of the time, they can just bypass the author I, totally. I wonder
0: – there's probably something interesting there, like – you could almost like incorporate some of this stuff, like in coordination with like certain print runs or something. You know, yeah. like you've got the you've got the hardcover, the paperback, the ebook, and the tote bag all at once. Who was it? And- was it
1: was it like Putnam or something that just yeah. did the the um, the the uh, paint swatch oh. editions of books? Yeah, like of old like books that are in the public domain, right? And it's like they're collectibles. Like, give me give me some paint swatch hook fin.
0: Public domain repurposing, folks. Yeah. We've talked about that. It's the yeah. best thing there is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, right. I'm pretty excited about the merchandising possibilities. Like, I want to wear one of my author's books, like, on a shirt and not yeah. have to, like, order it from Cafe Press. Yeah. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. Well, <laughs> all right, should we do our first topic?
1: I think we should. I think it's related.
0: It is kind of related. Um So we're going to be talking a little bit about author estates, and of course it's coming up because the most – um, I guess the most volatile uh, or the most notable author estate of kind of this era has certainly been Harper Lee's. Um, we've had the whole kerfuffle with Ghosts at a Watchman, and where, um, you know, where that book came from, whether it was something she approved of, you know, that whole publication story. We talked now,
1: previously on this episode about uh, her hometown becoming like a theme park.
0: Right. Exactly. And that's, you know, and kind of how all of this sort of flies in the face of. Perhaps, Everything perhaps she stood her for. personal <laughs> wishes, right? And so the latest thing here is there's a, they're making a graphic novel out of To Kill a Mockingbird, which is an interesting choice to me. But um, you know they've got this whole thing getting set up, and the Lee, you know, the Lee estate approached the publisher um, with the concept. I mean, they're really trying to you know, re, you know, as we've seen, you know, trying to repurpose this content into as many different things as possible. It's pretty clear that the. Harper Lee Estate is working very hard to make as much um, moolah as possible out of um, these one and, I guess, two books. Um, But there's a line in here in this Guardian article that I think is worth discussing here um, and anywhere else. Um, And it says here, you know, kind of at the end, it's sort of a throwaway line, and I want your reaction to it. Okay, here we go. Whether Lee would have approved of the way that her book is being used since her death is moot. And so my question to you, Laura, is it moot? Does it matter that, you know, all this stuff, and we, t- um, you know, as it relates to um, the author's work and whether she's, you know, obviously she's now dead, but, like, dead or alive, does it matter that this is all stuff that she wouldn't have agreed to? Mm-hmm. Does it matter that this is all stuff that kind of flies in the face of who she was as kind of a person and a writer? Like, what do you think in terms of, but do you think this is right? Do you think this is wrong? Do you think this matters at all? Like I don't know. I guess I felt kind of funny reading that particular line because you could, you could say this is happening or this is, um, you know, um, l- going to be lucrative or it's going to succeed or fail. But the idea that the author, the author's potential attitude is moot, is an interesting point to me because yeah. I'm not sure where I lie on it.
1: Well, so I, I kind of want to start with talking about um, the fact that it's a graphic novel, okay. and so I think everybody who's read. To Kill a Mockingbird, really kind of was exposed to it in school. Yeah, Um, it's you know one of those books that everybody's forced to read, and it's a wonderful book, but everybody is still forced to read it, right? right? And I think there, there, I I happen to be a fan of graphic novels. I think that there's something really wonderful about how they can get reluctant readers to really engage with a story. Yeah, Um, and also if you you know you have people who have reading disabilities in some sort of way, so it it kind of. Broadens the audience and makes it more accessible rather than just like something your teacher told you to read. It could be your teacher gave you the graphic novel instead of the book itself.
0: so that brings up but that brings up an interesting question though. is that is it the same book? Like the I guess you know, there's um, you know there are like you know, maybe it was during a practice episode we did once, but you and I have had a conversation <laughs> before about. Book adaptations, right? Like books yeah. written for you know, like to, you know, ki- like taking great classics and making them for toddlers or whatever.
1: Wishbone, um,
0: right? <laughs> or yeah, like things like that. And it's like, is it the same book? Like you're saying, well, you could just hand them the graphic novel instead. And my question to you is, um, is that still handing them to kill a mockingbird? Because I'm not sure that it is. I think it's
1: handing them the story. It's not handing them sure. to kill a mockingbird. Um, and, I, and I, you guess, know, and yeah. I feel like with a story like this. The story is what's what sticks with people, you know. Maybe
0: I mean, I, I mean, At yeah. least
1: the, the story sticks with me. Sure.
0: The sto- I mean, the story is certain. The story is certainly good, but I think that obviously sells, you know, the genius of the writing and all this stuff short. Sure. That you know, and you would hope that.
1: But if it's if it's between nobody like somebody not reading it and somebody getting the story in another way,
0: yeah.
1: I like the idea of them having access to a graphic novel.
0: Sure. I um, mean, I I, I probably. Come down on the. I mean, we may have to agree to disagree here because I think that the words are important, and that if you're going to engage with the text, you should engage with the text. But um, back to back to idea, what I
1: feel. Back to um. back
0: to the idea of um, intent and what her attitude. Yeah. Like, do you think that it matters that? Like, is this right or wrong based on what the author's intent would have been? Like, does the fact? Let's just say for a second that because we and we don't know for sure. One thing that this. um that is absolutely true is we don't know what Harper Lee would think about this because she's not around to tell us. But let's just say for a second that we knew for certain that she was against this. And she had like written it down somewhere. I don't want this done. Would that affect how you like, does that matter to you?
1: I think, I think it does in a way. Okay. So here's so here's here are my thoughts on that. Yeah. Um we we talk a lot on this podcast, and I talk a lot about it in my in you know, in my personal everyday life about how um once a book is out there once the text is out there Mm -hmm. authorial intent doesn't matter basically if an author failed to get what they wanted to get across on the page and somebody is reading it in a different way Uh the author doesn't get to come in and rewrite things basically so we've talked about that about um Essie Hinton basically getting really, really mad at her readers that, that saw like, some like some JK kind of homo yeah, yeah, some sort of like homoeroticism right. in the outsiders. Um, and it's, you know, well, if you didn't want that in there, you shouldn't have put it in there. Yeah. Um, but that's that still allows the author control over the text.
0: Right. That's um, kinda, yeah.
1: You know, they they were still able to put out what they wanted they wrote to put the book. out. You know they, they and they made the decision.
0: And that's um that's I think where I fall on yeah. this. Because like, yeah, author intent when evaluating a work itself doesn't really matter. Um, because you're gonna judge the book by what it is. But um that doesn't mean that the author, him or herself, doesn't matter. Yeah. Within the larger book or literary ecosystem, right? Like, And the, an estate essentially becomes the author, right? Like any author decision making, the things that that author chooses to do or write or produce, um, all those decisions in a moment when an estate gets involved gets turned over to them. And so it does matter because now this estate is functioning sort of as the de facto author of some of this stuff. And to me, it does feel like there's a certain amount of responsibility. In trying to keep true to what that author would have wanted. And I think there's, like, they say, you know, this article is a little bit even handed in the idea that, well, we don't know what she would have thought. It's like, come on.
1: We, we yeah, know. we do.
0: <laughs> like, we know how she felt about literally anytime anything like this happened, you know? She literally and,
1: wrote letters to people talking about how it was her hell to see people come <laughs> to her hometown yeah. and basically and, be a tourist there yeah. because of her. And
0: so to me, it, it does kind of matter. And it doesn't matter in our interpretations of um, what To Kill a Mockingbird is like or like what go, even *Ghost of a Watchman is or anything. But like it does matter to me when we start producing new texts out of her old stuff. Yeah. And I guess it's hard. It's hard for me to view that without a certain level of skepticism, even if the graphic novel ends up being great. And I'm sure that it will because it's a, like you say, it's a great story. But um, I don't know. Like to me... When it comes to decision-making as it relates to publication and kind of existing in the literary um, ecosystem, I think that author intent really does matter.
1: If it doesn't matter, why would we fight so hard in contracts over Exactly.
0: It's like, (laughs) you know, author behavior does matter in terms of the literary conversation. And you have a responsibility as an estate to deal with that and – um, to me, I feel like the Harper Lee estate um, is failing here, has failed in the past, and um, I would say it's a shame except it's not as though any of this stuff has any real ability to lessen the power of like To Kill a Mockingbird or any of these books, right? It's They're not really like – are they tarnishing her legacy? It's kind of a sports question almost, <laughs> but like it's um, – to me, they're not doing that, but it's like these are just dumb. I don't know. I'm not in favor. Okay,
1: so so you're saying that it doesn't tarnish the legacy, but yeah. I'm wondering about whether it might um, alter or maybe even overshadow it. So I- I'm thinking particularly it creates about it's a
0: really weird addendum. Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of how I, I view it. You know, it. I'm
1: kind of thinking about um, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, sure. which I have been to. Two or three times. Okay, so we're
0: talking what down in Florida. We're yeah, talking about down the Universal in Orlando. Studios? At, yeah, yeah okay. Universal Studios, sure. which
1: is actually right next door to the Dr. Seuss Universal Studios, right. um, which is kind of a whole nother thing. Yeah. That was licensed by his wife, and he wasn't a super big fan of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm thinking about, like, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, and you go there, and it feels magical, and you're like, oh, I get to drink butter beer, and mm-hmm. then you realize yeah, that it's I've cream been, soda, yeah. and it's gross, and whatever. <laughs> I drink, like, um, five
0: of those. Oh, <laughs> gross.
1: I was a pumpkin <laughs> juice girl, personally.
0: God, of course you were.
1: <laughs> but I'm just kind of thinking, is, like, you go there, yeah. and honestly, like, the best part of that is waiting in line for the freaking ride because that's where you yeah, see all like the, the holograms stuff. and stuff. Right, right, right. And I'm just thinking like you go into all the stores and like you want to be in Diagon Alley, you want to yeah. be in Hogsmeade. And you go in and everything is 39.95. Yeah. You know, and for me it it felt like when I walked in and I could like see everything, it like had a lot of magic. Mm-hmm. And then once I had to start paying for it, that's <laughs> when it it started to feel kind of weird The big
0: arm of capitalism came swinging down upon you. Yeah. Yeah. Um.
1: (laughs) yeah, Especially because like something like that is, is so pure and so true. And I think that can also be applied to, to kill a mockingbird. You know, you read it when you're a child, you know, it it speaks very deeply to sense of justice and rightness and, 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 and who people are. And then, you know, you charge people $55 to get into the town where she lived and like, was a recluse for a reason. Yeah, and it just feels weird to me.
0: Well, so like with that Harry Potter thing you're talking about, do you feel that that affects the author's legacy? Like, does he, does he, the Universal Studios and all this other crazy? I mean, Harry Potter now exists in so many different forms. Yeah, does that change Harry Potter for you? Does that change like the books for you? Um, and I guess for me, maybe it's a little different because I mean, J.K. Rowling is still alive. Yeah, she's um, still
1: alive. But then you think about – like there are multiple cases where she has – like people have published sequels to Harry Potter. Yeah. And they wrote it as like fan fiction and she has started to sue them and yeah. then realized that it's just like kind of inevitable. And so the, yeah. these other people are kind yeah. of like – in on the story and to be fair like Joe is an interesting example because she just like won't stop adding to her universe
0: yeah um <laughs> no she will not but
1: <laughs> but but like one one thing is like Harry Potter and the cursed child yeah. think about that like that was that was a play that was mm-hmm. written by other people mm-hmm. and she saw it kind of after the fact and put her name on it yeah and it sucked yeah <laughs> It was awful. Yeah. And it kind of and what that did is it you know, it had Harry and Hermione and Ron when they were adults and they were having real adult problems and real relationship problems yeah. and there was all of this kind of like negativity that like sucked the optimism and the happy ending out of the books themselves. Oh,
0: that's interesting. So I guess it kind of comes down to the question, um, and we this is an entirely separate episode, but we should at least raise the question here of like, is it canon, right? Like, does it is that are these extra stories? Are they official? Are they fan fiction? Are they tangential? It doesn't matter if uh, Rowling puts her name on it, but it all kind of it all kind of comes back to this idea of, um, in a lot of these situations, author intent matters right? Not with regard to how we interpret the text itself, as we've said a million times. Because they got their chance to do that, yeah. They do have... It does feel like they would want a certain say over how the material gets used afterward, especially if they fought so hard for certain rights, um, that I guess it just always kind of sits weird with me that um, we're trying to do so much with a book that... Or a book from an author who clearly did not want to do as much with it. It's like... I don't know. Just let t- her be. for
1: the record, I feel less weird about translating the text into a visual medium uh-huh. than I do feel about like taking <clears throat> Theodore Geisel's estate and turning it into like a theme park in Universal Studios. And I feel less yeah. weird about the graphic novel than I do about turning Harper Lee's hometown into a shrine to her. Um, but it, it's like it's it's really hard to say, you know, where is where does that iceberg end? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I saw, to be fair, I did see some of the drawings from the the graphic novel. And it's beautiful. I'm
0: sure it is. No, I this is not yeah. This is not a discussion about how good the graphic novel is going to be. I'm sure it'll be quite good. Um it's just yeah, I mean it's like we could take everything from all these, you know, dead authors and just Make it into all kinds of different shit.
1: (laughs) And in some ways, people have been fighting to do that for a very long time for everybody.
0: And I guess the words themselves as they're written matter. It's like if – it's like you can't have it both ways with when you're talking about authors, right? You can't say author intent doesn't matter. All they get is their one chance at the words they've written and then say – and also I get to change the words they've written. You know? Like I feel like um, they should at least be given the – decency of of keeping those but oh well well.
1: (laughs) it's coming whether we want to or not and it was licensed by her estate and that's just going to be the way that it is
0: i was looking at um other author estates i was like i like google author estate fights (laughs) (laughs) like leading into this and i found i found some good ones um the hemingway estate sued um a biographer of his um back in uh, 1968 because they felt like some of the um words that were kind of attributed to Hemingway in the biography weren't necessarily um, able to be used without copyright permission. Um, Let's see here. John Steinbeck's children are all trying to, like, basically kill each other over the rights to his (laughs) copyrights right now. So that's
1: a lesson for Uh, all of you. No matter if your book gets published or not, put your book's copyright information as something you give away (laughs) in your will because otherwise (laughs) – who knows?
0: Otherwise, your large sons are going to battle it out <laughs> for years to come. Uh, anyway. Um, so, um, so the next thing. Yeah. Are you ready? I am ready. Um, the question, um, as, we round this kind of, as we round this time of year, past BEA, past Memorial Day, in um, publishing, that usually means one thing. It means the Summer Friday.
1: Summer Friday. Right. Um, <laughs> explain to the people what sure. that is.
0: um, basically, in publishing in um it's a New York practice, but I'm sure it extends to publishers um that aren't in New York, such few that there are. Um it's the idea that on Fridays during the summer, you either some places do you get the day off every other week. some places just give you a half day every Friday. Some um you get
1: to choose, yeah, you get what do you do?
0: I will. so the first place I worked, did, I picked every other Friday all the way off. And then the other weeks were normal. Um, and then at the second place I worked, it was a half day every Friday, mm. which I ended up liking way more, um, which we'll, you know, we'll get into here in a minute. But um, it's basically this this practice that kind of stems from the fact that um, no one was doing any work on Fridays anyway. in the summer in publishing. Like, you know, it's just kind of this thing that kind of cropped up out of well, um, you know, we're all just kind of staring at the ceiling anyway, and we all wish we were out in the sun and all this stuff, and of course, this is publishing, and so the answer wasn't, but we should just actually do the work we're responsible for. <laughs> it was no, 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 let's all just leave there <laughs> like, um, so everyone everyone decided to leave, and now um now summer Fridays exist, yeah. and so do you, you
1: send emails on Fridays?
0: I mean, I do, except uh, but they're met with um out of office replies. out of office replies uh, i can't ever decide if i have summer fridays now because i work from my own home office uh-huh. right so um some days i do some days i I, don't, I
1: i do fridays from home but i use my fridays as like reading and editing days yeah. so the days where i'm allowed to like not put pants on or talk to people right um You know, I can even take myself out for, like, a nice leisurely brunch where it's just (laughs) me and a pot of tea and a scone and, like, my computer.
0: Well, so that's what it is, right? It's this – it's a very romanticized idea, the Summer Friday. Like, it kind of harkens back to a lot of um, very self-referential publishing imagery of, like, the long lunch or the, you know, the drinks early in the afternoon. You're, like, kind of – you know how, um, like – I guess the, honestly, the best way to think about it is like you know, like Mad Men culture, <laughs> like you know, like the kind of what's portrayed. there. like that's how publishing used to be, and it's like those people love to kind of harken back to that imagery yeah. as it relates to their Friday. When people use like and, real mail, yeah,
1: yeah, and <laughs> exactly. then it wasn't just like oh, um, hold on, let, so, let me like negotiate this contract for my phone.
0: Right. So well, that's so that that's a thing. Is let me ask you this: Is the summer Friday? Is the summer Friday real? Because it used to be such that you could step away from your work, but we sort of have entered a phase of work um, where one, your email is on your phone, you're, um, you know, publishing you
1: to do reading out right, of Right, exactly.
0: Publish, publishing employees are, especially at the assistant level, who um, end up having to make these hours up at other, you know, parts of the week, um, they don't really get to take any less time working. They just have to do the same amount of work the other few days, yeah. you know, and um, you end up having to work from home for no extra pay. Um, you end up having to check your email all the time. you end up having to do all this stuff. And so the question is, is the summer Friday what it used to be? Um, and <laughs> um I don't I don't quite know the answer to that, but um, why don't we we should talk about seasons. Yeah. We should talk about why this happens and, like, because it's not just, like, this aesthetic choice. It also has to do with
1: – It's not just because the sun is shining. That's part well, of it.
0: Well, that – honestly, it's a, that's a big part of it. Yeah. But um, because the sun is shining such that it is, um, publishing has, like, literally warped its own, like, yearly calendar around the sun. We're very, like, Mayan in that way.
1: <laughs> uh, talk uh, about the season. Well,
0: so, like um, – I mean I think you know we've all kind of heard the axiom that summer is a dead zone. Yeah. for publishing, right? Like not that many books get bought, not have, that many books published.
1: Do you take books out on submission in the summer? No.
0: Because it's I mean I guess I guess I have, now that I'm thinking about it I guess I have one or two right now but it's like it slows down, man, and it's because it's this kind of self-referential thing where fall is the big season, right? And so everyone's kind of gearing up for fall and doing all this stuff and that's kind of
1: all my lazy contracts right, exa- right now exactly, like the contracts that-, that are going to take 2 months to do right
0: those kind of things yeah. and and then like spring is the other big season because that's when you've got to get your beach reads out right like so spring is when you have to hurry 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 to get the books you want people to buy for their summer vacations out because no one buys books during the summer either and hmm. they they all buy books in the spring, so then they go on they va- they go on vacation, you know. And so it's like a whole season. It's like kind of like television in that way, you know. Like no new shows really, um, you know, debut during the summer. They're all it's like the big new fall season or the big, you know, spring, you know, the release fall lineup. As we say that we have, we have already mentioned that George R. You know, like Game of Thrones is back like this summer. So what the hell? Do yeah, but I know? it's but paid. But it's, it's paid though. It's yeah, not. It's different. not network. Um. Yeah. So
1: HBO will do anything and we'll be there like they can they can premiere the new episodes at 10 a.m. in the morning and like,
0: (laughs) yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, We will all
1: like stop and take our summer Fridays at like Wednesday (laughs) at 10 a.m. Yeah,
0: exactly. Summer Wednesday to watch Game of Thrones. Um, (laughs) But like one thing I think is interesting about the summer Friday um, is that. I don't know, at least my experience when I was working as like an editorial assistant, um. It's kind of like what we just said. I didn't do any less work because of the summer Friday. No, of course not. I ended up having to honestly me and the rest of the assistant class in the um in the company ended up having to do more work because all of our bosses were out like wherever the hell they were on the, during the summers. It's like the only people in the office on a Friday were you know those of us who had to like someone from the list had to be at you know the office that day checking email because so-
1: I yeah. have a theory about this. Yeah. So towards the end of the recession, like I Googled uh-huh. today, like summer Fridays yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and up posted a whole bunch of articles uh-huh. about summer Fridays. And they were all very like tongue in cheek, like one the New York Times did. And it was like at the end of the recession talking about how media companies, you know, like yeah. book publishers, magazines, yeah. ad companies, et cetera. How a lot of them were either had like just gotten rid of the summer Fridays, but they held out as long as they could bless them (laughs) or that they were still holding on to this ridiculous, like archaic tradition, even though we weren't out of the recession yet. Um, and, And I think that. The tone of that was really snotty because the conception was that people are just, like, taking days off, like, willy-nilly. Like, they're just not getting much work done because the idea is that at the office they weren't getting work done. Yeah. What wasn't covered was the fact that – and we have talked about this before – the publishing – Work life balance and the expectation for what you do and what you do outside of the office
0: didn't change doesn't and change in fact, and increased it's,
1: yeah it's just yeah. like you have more time outside the office to, to go do the, do work. the you same were, work you were yes. you were doing the same thing <laughs> like, yeah
0: and that's that's the thing with it is you know between you know the work from home dynamic that's so prevalent now between you know having your email everywhere between Gig unpaid economy. hours between between peer pressure right because in every office there's like some of you know some of the assistants never take summer fridays and they very very sanctimoniously tell you i just don't i'm just too busy i don't have the time so this is even
1: worse (laughs) than like the fight over the cardigans
0: oh it's much worse i hated these people and (laughs) it's and it just makes you feel as though you're neglecting your duty somehow Uh even though you're doing like you know, what the company has said is okay to do. Like you're going, yeah, what they
1: expect you to do. And
0: it's the same, that's the same kind of culture that kind of bleeds into why no one ever applies for overtime at a publishing house. It's because, because not everybody is everyone, you know, like half the people are assuming that this is just part of the job and the other half are like, well, maybe I should apply for overtime for this. And they don't because they feel shamed by the fact that no one else does because they're willing to just kind of take it. And it's, that's, (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's It's interesting. Um, and so, but that's kind of a big company thing, right? Like, because once you get at a bigger place, like a more corporate uh, publishing environment, um, it's easy to see how there could be those kind of divisions and stuff. But <laughs> I worked at a small press, you know, for a while, and we had this thing where we would go, and I just can't imagine that this was useful to anyone involved. Um, we would go every Friday during the summers, at about what we would get out done at like 1, you know, noon, whenever it was. And we would go to the same bar every single week on a Friday. And it was was like, you know, 80% of the company would go because there were only like, you know, 13 of us in the whole press. (laughs) You know what I mean? So like everyone under the age of – what 50 was, <laughs> was at this bar and we would go and we would just sit there all afternoon and just get shit housed you know
1: so it was basically <laughs> and, like you were at work but instead of reading you were drinking
0: yeah no I mean <laughs> exactly so you um, couldn't
1: even like the week wasn't even yours it was just that you were like okay well now it's time well, to go well, get was, drunk with my co Yeah, exactly
0: so we would go do this thing and it got to the point where <laughs> um like we would show up so reliably that like, you know, our like table would be like ready in the back. You know? And, <laughs> like like sometimes like during the week, I'll never forget this. The bartender at the bar, Derek, my friend. Derek. Derek. Um what bar was he this would, first bar? I'm, I'm not telling you that. Um he would he would call me on my work phone.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, you and he, are shitting me. No, no, no. And he, he would call me, and like I, I remember I Wait, answered. Wait, why
1: were you the Touchstone guy first of all? I,
0: because I don't know. Because I was like the one who you were the
1: assistant. Because who was like, like, like I doing was
0: doing the it. one at the you know at the bar being like, yeah, man, call me. Just call me at work. You know what I mean? Like I'm like <laughs> that guy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like trying to be like overly friendly. So Derek um, would call um, so you. De- so I, I like I guess I handed the bartender my business card <laughs> one day, and it's like
1: <laughs> make sure that we're there at one p.m. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, and he, I guess he would. We would like like I guess the idea was that we could like place food orders ahead of time or something. Oh my God. But he would call and I remember one time I'm like sitting there, it was it was like a Wednesday or something and I answer my some anonymous number, right? And I answer and I'm like, Derek you can't call me at work and I'm like I'm up on him. <laughs> And, it's like he's and, a
1: secret lover. Yeah, I know
0: it, it was a lot like he's a secret <laughs> lover. In a, in a way, he was. Um, and <laughs> but he, he kept what calling. Was that he, was the only time I answered. He kept calling. So he called um, you
1: like by your name instead of just like your drink order, like gin and tonic with a twist. Well, I mean, we, so you know? it.
0: Well, it's not as though we were competing for attention. It's one o'clock at a bar. Like we were the On only our, ones I mean, there. Like and sure. so in like you know, eighty percent of this company is just ripped at.
1: I, I would like to take a moment and say here that if you are at one o'clock on a summer Friday in a, at yeah. a bar in the Twin Cities yeah. there, you will be competing for attention.
0: Mm. Is that true? I've never tried that. Yes. it's <laughs>
1: Eric, it's very true. I mean, we get three nice months a year. We use yeah, them. That's true. Anyway,
0: summer Friday should have been invented well, in Minnesota. Yeah, so that was okay. fun. So this was this was a good like these. These are fond memories. I enjoyed this. Um <laughs> <laughs> but
1: but now that you're an agent it's a little frustrating
0: well yeah because well, there's just no one there's no one doing any there's no one doing any work on friday afternoons and like but at the same time there's like this culture where it's like oh i don't know i shouldn't take the time so instead of just taking the time i like send a bunch of emails i get a bunch of out of office messages and it's like that seems far um,
1: I just assume people are working, but nobody wants to talk to me. Right. So, like, I I think that things are getting read. I think that things are happening. It's just whenever it involves anybody communicating with somebody else, yeah. then it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Your edit's going to get done on a Friday. Yeah. Your manuscript submission's going to get done on a Friday. Do you know what's not going to get done on a Friday? Contracts. Yeah. Responding emails. Yeah. Any of that stuff.
0: Yeah. So I've kind of um, – I think the thing that fascinated me most about, you know, the Summer Friday in media such that it still exists is it used to like where did this originally come from, right? Because it's a very – it's very specifically – and it's it's kind of bled over into other industries. But, but it's, it's, it's mostly very arts much,
1: in Manhattan. It's
0: very much a New York thing and it's very much an arts thing and it's very much a publishing thing. Um, it's
1: mostly publishing and ad agencies. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. And so I was kind – of, I kind of dug around and it kind of is what um, – the history is what I thought it was, which is that back in the day, you know, the 50s and 60s of publishing. Mad era. Exactly. Like this this period of time, all of the fancy editors at these giant New York houses had to get to the Hamptons, right?
1: Wait, 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 wait. These people used to, can, used to be able to afford houses in the Hamptons. <laughs> that's a
0: great point. Um, yeah, Whoa. No, they, back when publishing was, you Wait, know, did
1: they drive instead of just take the bus?
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, because they had to beat traffic. That's why they. That's why they wanted out early, and so they would get to the Hamptons because they all. And that's the thing is they were all there, right? Like they all had houses. All the all the big agents had houses over there. All the big editors had houses over there. And what you saw is that happened, and it, this sort of like literary colony kind of developed over there. And, you know, kind of the seasonal houses that all of a sudden everyone was like prioritizing getting to during this one specific season of the year when not many publications were happening, when not many, um, you know, other things were going on, Um, authors started to move there, right? Because that's where the people were like, this was the chance. And so suddenly, you know, you've got guys like, you know, EL Doctorow was there, Um, you know, all these, you know, uh, John Steinbeck moved out there. We, um, that somehow we've managed to get Steinbeck into this episode twice, but... (laughs) Uh, you know, it's been
1: my dream forever you know, to Truman, do that.
0: Truman Capote, Kurt Vonnegut—you know these guys used to all go to the Hamptons, and it just became this thing where you know, anytime you know a big editor would sign, um, would sign an author like to a major deal or something, they'd say, "Go buy a house in the Hamptons," right? Like that was kind—it of, was kind of this colloquial thing, right? And so this whole thing set up over there and they would play tennis and they would sit around and they would eat meals you know and they would
1: they would have this uh, whole little artist they had this whole
0: you know they would play games and they would it was just like this whole little community right where so many of like the most like famous um publishing relationships and editor author relationships agent relationships like so many reputations got made based on these like quiet summer interactions, like, away from the publishing scene in Manhattan. Mm. And it's (laughs) – it kind of got me thinking. It's like – it's not any wonder to me that an industry that was – that really draws so much of its identity, you know, from the mid-20th century from that culture, right? From, like, this club that you've got to be a certain – you've got to have a certain amount of money to access, you know, to even get there. Like Like, literally, a physical club, right? Like, these neighborhoods out there. Um, it's like something with that at its heart, it's not a wonder to me that it has like, for instance, a diversity problem or has trouble, you know, paying interns or has trouble, um, you know, treating its assistants while well, they're paying them a fair wage, you know, all these things. Or escaping
1: things. The, it's like, the elite label.
0: Exa- exactly. Because they're literally and just a bunch of rich people. Because it literally people. was <laughs> a bunch of rich people out there on this, you know. In the Hamptons. In the Hamptons. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It just really made me think because of this, like you know, "quote unquote" golden era that I think really kind of informs a lot of practices now. And so, yeah, like the summer Friday is great, but I think that the concept behind the summer Friday it kind of seeps into a lot of other stuff too. Um, you know, it seeps into assistants having to do a bunch of stuff when editors just kind of go missing. You know, for certain weekends, it seeps into um, you know paying people an unlivable wage. Um, while they have to live and work in Manhattan. And, like, that's the thing is all these people, you know, reading these bios, you know, they all kind of grew up in Manhattan, right, and they all had this money. And so they were able to kind of live and work there and kind of create this culture of, um, you know, wealth that sort of drove publishing for a really long time and not only drove, um, you know, not only were they there, but they were kind of creating really a giant chunk of, um, you know, a lot of the canon, Right. Wow. Like yeah. so many of these guys. It's like, I don't know. So I guess if
1: they couldn't if they were like really bad at their their back end yeah. in tennis, do you think they would have had that <laughs> book deal?
0: I don't know. Well, it's even that it's just like the fact that they were even able to get onto the tennis court, you know, yeah. it's like that stuff matters. And you talk about, you know, the 20th century, so much of that, you know, you think of like ad men, and you think of these people, um, so much of it was like interpersonal contact right because there wasn't email. I mean that's what it is there now wasn't, to be right, honest right. Like it's like you yeah. had to be in the club and the yeah. club was happening at a place that like no one could get to except for the people who had already kind of made it beforehand and it's like that doesn't sound that it doesn't sound that unfamiliar to right now yeah. and I don't know I find it interesting and it's, it's like this very romanticized period right like I read a Vanity Fair article on it today and it's like you know, all the you know, we they know all the drinks they had and all the parlor games they played and what they ate, you know, the type of seafood they had and you know, what they would yell during their tennis matches and how everyone <laughs> would laugh at it. And it's like it's all very like kind of fun and gatsby-ish to read about, you know.
1: Yeah. But But we know how that book ends. It's, <laughs> yeah.
0: It's also like, man, this this is how this stuff happens. This is how you end up with the sort of, and maybe I'm like, you know, being a grouch and reading too much into it, but like, I don't think I, you are. I don't, I don't know that I am, and I'm not even trying to be a grouch about it. I am because, as we've discussed, I love summer Fridays. Um, I had a very good time for them uh, with them for you know many years. But um, I think it's interesting, and I think that kind of cultural stuff it ends up informing who's in the game, which authors are able to you know achieve what type types of success, and. I guess, you know.
1: Is is there still – is it mostly nostalgia in – I'm talking specifically yeah. Manhattan-based publishing. Yeah. We've yeah. – you know, we've – right. you, if you listened for a while, you know that publishing has been expanding out of New York City. Now, mm-hmm. you know, we can have a podcast about publishing in Minnesota. Right. You right. know, we can do all of these right. things because of the technology. Right. Um, and we've talked on this episode already about how technology has changed what Summer Fridays are for the working people. Yeah. Um, but is there still the rhetoric of, you know, the publisher is going to the Hamptons? Like yeah. it, 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 all of that is still the same.
0: I don't know. So <laughs> the jokes are all still there. I remember, I mean, like you, the, like those little turns of phrase and stuff like they're, they're definitely, they're like the reason I knew to like google it and look it up is because things it was things people were saying at the you what, know
1: what kind of turn of phrase
0: like gotta get to the hamptons you know not and it's not as though these people were actually going to the hamptons because things have changed now and you know people oh
1: so people say that when it just say means it. they're it's, just yeah, going home yeah. no what? exactly like on
0: friday it's just like you know it's like this thing people kind of make jokes about you know publishing's own history because publishing loves referencing itself sure um but it's like that you know the jokes are still there but i mean i think that jokes and language and all that kind of stuff, you know, it harkens to a certain set of imagery that in any other field we would say, yeah, that definitely informs the present. And I think it does. And I think largely, you know, in a lot of ways it's harmless and it's fun. And it it is fun in publishing to think about this age when everyone who mattered was on this one, you know, little strip of land. It's an exciting
1: thing to think about. Like it's (laughs) an exciting idea. Because you want to be there,
0: right? Like you want, it's like, man, it would have been so cool to be there where all these deals were going down, where all these editors and these agents were literally forming... 20th century American lit. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, well, who got to play? You know. Yeah. Not everybody. <laughs> and, I'm wondering what and, the
1: equivalent of that is. Yeah, now, because I, don't I know. feel like I mean, the Hamptons is dying out in some sort of way. Well,
0: you, I mean, as a con- as a concept, as we're discussing it now, maybe. Um, yeah. But. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we've you know we've discussed before you know the you know the problems of diversity and um, class you know in the in the canon, and I would hope you know we've kind of talked about how things are you know starting to maybe change and, you know there's sort of these efforts and it's like those efforts are made by technology, you know because we're able to access more people, we're able to do all these things, but um, it, by the same re- reasons. We're able to see how you know technology and Twitter and social media and all these things are able to kind of help us reach more people than we would otherwise see. Um, none of that existed, and that and so yeah. like in thinking about how did publishing happen in the manner that it did, I think the I think the culture behind the Summer Friday has a lot to do with it. And I think yeah. that that's not necessarily this like giant badge of shame, but it's just it's just interesting. It's um, and now we've kind of got this holdover you know culture now where yeah the Summer Friday is really fun, but it still kind of screws over the people who don't have the luxury, you know, because assistants have to just simply do it's not like they're getting any much that much of a reprieve. Um, Before
1: when your boss went away, your boss was literally untouchable for 3 yeah. days, which meant yeah. that you had to handle everything, but it also meant that you couldn't be given more stuff to do. Yeah. Um and now everybody can be reached all of the time. Yeah. And so, and that
0: burden, and my point yeah. here is that burden gets placed at the assistant level. Like yeah. I am someone who thinks editorial assistants and agent assistants and these people they need to be paid way more because they do way more than they're giving credit for, and um, part of that is you know tech based, and part of it is kind of this idea that um, the people in charge can, you know, drift off. So, do you think Whatever. we're
1: helping or hurting by not sending books out on submission <laughs> in the summer?
0: No, I think we're helping. I mean, I, th- I think it's just, that just is what it is. Um, yeah. You know, I mean? we, you know, one people, one group of people we haven't mentioned yet is our booksellers. Oh, yeah, right, who don't necessarily buy that much in the summer. You know, like the, a lot of book selling used to be like kind of traveling and stuff, and um, that. Um, you know, like that's very seasonal as well. So, like honestly, the industry is what it is. It's yeah. just it's interesting, I think, to look at where it came from and why like why is summer a dead zone. Do you know and one thing because, that I've been yeah. seeing
1: is so before, and I'm and I'm I'm thinking that maybe this this'll get to summer, but before, you know, even like five years ago, yeah. there was spring and then there was fall. Right. And if your book didn't come out right. on those times, well then you're shit out of luck, right? right? Um, one thing that I've been seeing specifically in the, the children's sphere is Mm -hmm. winter being a really, really, really big published. I've
0: done a winter season before. Yeah. So
1: winter and that's, and before it was just kind of something that like some people did. Yeah. But now I think it's a thing that everybody's doing. And so I think.
0: Summer might happen soon. Summer might happen. And I think it's, so it's not as though, the thing with that though, to me is, um, Publishers can do whatever they want if they can convince people to buy the books. Yeah, like you've got to you know deal with consumer behavior, right? Like if but if people aren't necessarily buying as many books or looking for new releases, like there's a lot of messaging. Like people look for new books in, um, you know, in fall and in spring. Um, and if so, if you're going to start all of a sudden putting things out in summer, it's not as though the audience is going to be there right away. There's a lot of like work. That has but to, think
1: about if you figure that out, then yeah. how easy it would be to like get on the bestseller list yeah. in summer. Oh, absolutely! That would be amazing. Well, you,
0: I so I think you'd have to take a risk, oh, right? Yeah. You'd have to say we're putting our big A list author, and we're publishing them in June, and
1: because those people wouldn't care, like the the readers of that big author, the they readers wouldn't care. wouldn't care. The
0: author would absolutely care, eh. and the agent would absolutely yeah. care. And the publisher would probably obviously care because one thing we've talked about on the show a million times is that publishers are risk-averse. Like – and if they know they can publish someone in the fall or in the spring and make – in the in the fall really. Like fall is when – like if you've got a big giant book that you can it comes put out anywhere. in fall. You're probably going to put it in fall unless you feel like the fall is too crowded and then you'll put it in spring. But um, someone – I mean the way to change summer is to put somebody in summer that people care about. Yeah. You but know, like think like about really, it. If you
1: could have four gigantic books a year instead of two or three. Yeah.
0: Like theoretically,
1: that's a great idea.
0: Yeah. But it's just like publishers are so strapped for cash and risk – well, strapped for cash in a certain way (laughs) because as we've seen, um, they're willing to fling endless gobs of money at certain projects. Um, I don't know. I mean I think that it's – summer is an interesting time in publishing and I think that it speaks to a lot of different um, cultural things, a lot of different um, economic things um, and a lot of different stuff about consumer behavior and – most importantly, it speaks to everyone needing a drink on yeah. Friday Manhattan afternoon.
1: <laughs> in summer is awful.
0: It really is bad. It's like, so bad. But, like, okay, so, well, it's bad to, like, have to, like, walk around in, like, dress clothes to get to work. But, like, it, Manhattan in summer is pretty fun. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, just to, like, wander around on, like, a Saturday I mean, go an, to the As park. an
1: agent who is, like, oh, to going. to go work there. Like, sure, it's I've terrible. Gone but, like, gone and I'm, like, going to meetings and I'm yeah. traipsing all up and down. Sure, okay, and, like, that sucks. You know, yeah.
0: Like, Um, I remember, I remember my first, so, um, when I got into publishing, right. I Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've told this story before. Like I went, um, I just moved out to New York city. Right. And I stayed and I stayed on my friend's couch until I figured it out. And I just like threw on this suit and just like wandered around. And like, I had like set up like a few informational interviews, you know, beforehand. And I just kind of like wandered around Manhattan trying to like find my way and, um, you're right. Like I'll never forget how like hot and like hopeless I felt. Just like also you're wonder- <laughs>
1: you're like Scandinavian, so you get really red oh, I, when you. I was get very
0: hot. red. I was very sweaty. <laughs> I'm like trying to figure out the subway. I'm like sweating profusely on like the you know. Oh,
1: it's extra sweaty in the. I'm subway. like sticking
0: my you know hand on the pole, and like sweat is just coming off it, and everyone's like looking at me all weird. You know, I, it was terrible. I I didn't belong, and <laughs> um, luckily luckily I don't. Uh, someone eventually hired me, um, but. Yeah, no, I mean, I think summers in in New York book publishing. I was uh,
1: wondering if we would get through this episode without an Eric Sweat story.
0: We can't get through like a normal episode pre planning without an Eric Sweat story. I'm constantly sweating; it's terrible.
1: It's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, anyway.
1: So yeah, if you're if you're a writer, whether you're agented or not, yeah, just just tack on a couple of weeks to your expected return timelines yeah. in yeah. the summer. Yeah. Because, you know, agents have to spend way longer tracking people down. Yeah. And we also might take summer Fridays too because, yeah. you know what, Laura needs to kayak. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Man, what a, what a third-person statement that is. Um,
1: I mean, like, kayaks are fun as hell.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, should, should we move to the right tip? Are we ready? Yes. Um, is so, it
1: kayaks are fun as hell? It's
0: not. That is not a right tip. Fine. Um, but... So, for this, we were kind of thinking about what to do for it. And I thought that we'd kind of tie it to um, the writing by reading episode we've got coming up, where we're talking about the Red Wedding, um, the famous scene in the Game of Thrones series. Um, You know, that everyone knows, and I won't spoil it for you if you haven't. We're going to spoil
1: it it in the other episode. Yeah, we'll spoil it
0: in the real episode. But, like, um, one thing that George R.R. Martin does really well among many. Um, other traits that has made him a highly successful author is that he doesn't overwrite his major scenes, right? When you get to the big moments in uh, a Game of Thrones book, whether it's, you know, any of them, you know, all, what, how many of are out now? Five?
1: Five.
0: Um, when it gets to the big shining, like, battle scene or the big, like, reveal of some bit of information. Something gets tied right, together right, or exactly, something just, big like, happens. The big emotional high point. You'll notice that his language simplifies. Yeah. He doesn't overwrite it. He doesn't fill it with a bunch of explaining. He doesn't fill it with a bunch of um, you know, interior thoughts from his characters or like try too hard to make things sound too exciting. Or he just, or
1: he doesn't spend too much time like explaining why it's important.
0: Exactly. He's so good at just letting things lie at the moment. It's the most exciting because he knows he's already done the setup work to just let it happen. And so like I guess our our pub tip or our write tip today is don't be afraid to just be a little bit understated in your major scenes and just trust that you've done the work of setting it up, of building it up to that kind of plot climax and then just letting it happen, you know? Like you don't need to beat your reader over the head. You've given them enough to think about. Um, and if you just write, you know, economically and you write simply, you let the simple emotion of the moment that you've been building throughout your the rest yeah. of your entire – you know, you've spent 100 so pages of real work getting to that moment, right? Just let yourself have, breathe a little. And that breathing, I think, you know, if you're in terms of thinking about it as, you know, okay, simplify the language, make it just purely sensory, make it something, you know, you don't have to do everything at once. Um, I think that always ends up better. Like an overwritten, nothing makes me more mad than an overwritten major scene, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And that's one thing that uh, Martin rarely has. And I think that's a big reason why he's successful, and, and why And it's these surprising, big, given yeah.
1: that his books are two thousand pages exactly. long. No,
0: that—that's that, <laughs> the thing—is like, and so he knows when to kind of really, you know, take his hand off the steering wheel, you know, and just let things lie. And I think that that's why certain moments of his have become so breathable and so memorable. It's because he's not trying to do too much at the moments he's already set up.
1: Yeah. So, so. we're going to go into more detail about exactly how he does that. Yeah. Yeah. But then you can kind of take that and and weave it into your story itself. Um, so make sure to tune into Writing by Reading on Thursday, June 15th mm-hmm. for, I guess, a little bit more in depth of that specific point. Um, And with that, thank you for joining us Mm -hmm. at this, our 34th episode, 34th of Print Run. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you for Writing by Reading this Thursday. Otherwise, we'll see you for a regular episode next week.
0: Summer's here, folks.